What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I recently read an article in one of my library journals about a high school librarian who set up a coloring corner in her library. She got some copyright-free coloring pages off the internet and set up a section in her library with these pages and some crayons and colored pencils and allowed any of the students and staff to come into the library at breaks, before or after school, or at lunch to color. This librarian had an overwhelmingly positive response to her simple coloring station. She found first that the students found it a very social activity as they visited with their friends and even sometimes worked together to create a masterpiece. But most of all, she found that those who colored left with a sense of calm and that they reported less stress and anxiety. Any adults out there who have encountered the adult coloring book craze in bookstores and craft stores may already have found these same benefits, and many experts would agree with you. Psychologist Ben Michaelis found that coloring changes focus, thus allowing people to feel less distressed. Other studies have also found that coloring can be a mental pit stop that helps people refocus so they can later be better problem solvers and have higher levels of concentration. The world we live in can be especially stressful for children and teens, so it seems that many, like my librarian colleague, have hit on a simple solution to enhancing the social and emotional literacy of teens with just a few pencils and pieces of paper. It seems evident that coloring does provide some great benefits for our emotional health, but another thing to remember is that creating art of any kind is really an important part of who we are as human beings. For even the youngest children, even the most simple art is a form of self-expression that helps them to develop mentally as they try out new ideas. And it also helps them to develop physically as they develop motor and spatial awareness. With all of these benefits, it seems clear that here at Rachel's World, we advocate for art, even in its most simple and direct forms. So maybe it's time to consider getting a great new box of crayons and a fantastic new coloring book so that your children can enjoy some of the benefits that come with creating art. And then why don't you join on in? Because it seems we could all use a little more color in our lives. Fear stereotyping, labeling, misunderstanding. Any one of these might surface when we look at those with a disability. Our guest today, Dr. Tina Dykes, shares tips on what to look for when choosing children's books that accurately and positively portray young characters with disabilities. Such books can be a great help for us and our children if they lead us to be more accepting of those with these special challenges. Dykes, a professor in the BYU School of Education, is the founder and current chair of the Dolly Gray Children's Literature Award, which recognizes high-quality children's books that portray characters with developmental disabilities. Tina Dykes has worked in the field of education for 30 years as a special educator, professor, and administrator. Her scholarship has resulted in three books about our conversation today. How Best to Use Children's Literature Featuring Characters with Special Needs. Here she is, and Rachel Wadham. 
We're in studio chatting with Tina today. Welcome, Tina. Thank you. One of your areas of expertise is talking about children's books and particularly about children with disabilities that are depicted in children's books. So tell us a little bit about just kind of in general, what do you think depictions of children with disabilities in in books, in children's books, should look like? What, what, what should we be looking for when we're looking for a book? Okay, if it's a major character, then you want to make sure that this character shows multidimensional growth throughout the book, that they've, they learn and grow and they're just not a vehicle for someone else's growth, that... Um, for example, the curious incident. Oh yes, of the dog yeah. in the nighttime by Mark Haddon. This was uh, published in two thousand and three, and it, w- it it won the Dolly Gray Children's Literature Award. You saw a lot of growth in the character who had a high functioning type of autism, um, and he was independent. He was able to make decisions on his own. He wasn't just dependent upon others. So many times in in children's books, the character with a disability is dependent and does not initiate friendships and has to wait for others to do things for them, and they become helpless. Um, The Curious Incident shows, no, he's not helpless. He has a problem to solve, and he's going to go out and solve it. And so it shows, you know, his uniqueness, but still his ability to have self-determination, to set his goals and meet those goals. I really like that sense of when we're looking particularly for a depiction of a character with a disability that we need to kind of look broader than maybe some of the predisposed stereotypes mm. that we might have conceived of or of the sense of helplessness or, or you know, I, I, even that word disability mm. it, it has that kind of context that they, they don't have abilities. So we're going to look for that. So looking mm. past that, particularly to help our children look past it, I think is is a very significant thing. We need to be really careful in picking books that that open the scope. What other thoughts? Well, when you talk about, you know, labeling the disability, you know, sometimes now in particularly in novels, they are not labeling the disability, but you see a kid and you think, "Wow, I've met a child like that before," but they never label it as having Asperger's syndrome or whatnot. And so it just becomes a child who has these unique characteristics that may seem familiar. I think that's a beautiful way to approach some of these issues in a softer, more gentle way. And that, too, I think, is that soft and gentle. I mean, I don't think we need to be hit over the head with it, too, because I think sometimes books, particularly about children with disabilities, can be so overpowering about, this is the disability, and we are going to preach to you about how you should treat this child with perfect respect and, and those types of things. It, I think that kind of sense of naturalness, that this is just a part of who they are, um, really shows kind of a quality depiction so what other ones do you have examples of some great things that might be really quality representations? Well, for example, when, when you're looking at the representations and does it fit with current practices, Al Capone, those, those books, the Al Capone books, uh, Does My Shirts is this one I've got here the, by Jennifer Choldenko. Um, I love this book. But it's historical. So you've got to, as a teacher, a librarian, a parent, take a look at the context in which the story is being told. Because um, the sister, um, 
Natalie Flanagan. She's 15 years old. She doesn't go to school. And so if a kid picks this up and says, wow, kids with autism don't go to school. That's weird. Why, why do I have these kids in my class who are going to school? You've got to contextualize, you know, this is what was happening at the turn of the century. Um, and this is, you know, this was a great depiction of including Natalie into the context of, of her brother Moose and his, his friendships. Um, so you've got to contextualize it in every case. And I think that that is an interesting point, too, because I think how we have treated people with disabilities and the laws and all of that have have changed over time. So how do we help children understand that? How do we help them understand that there's this kind of continuum and things have changed and things not may, may not be the same today as they were in the past? What kind of tips do you have to help us understand that. That's such a great question because nowadays kids have grown up alongside kids with special needs. So to read something like Al Capone might not make sense to them because it's just so foreign because they have had kids in their classrooms ever since kindergarten, maybe preschool, who have special needs. I think we are becoming more accepting as a society of of our human differences. And so using some historical pieces to say, you know what, you guys are really lucky because back in my generation, these kids didn't even get to go to school. And now they get a free and appropriate public education. Um, so just to te- teach them about history and how it really fits with uh, where they're living today. Have you seen that happen in the context of your career where we have, we're just getting better depictions and more accurate depictions? Has there been a significant change in these books over this period of time? That's a really great question because we actually did a study on this and we looked at Newberry books to see how the depictions have changed of, of all types of disabilities. And yes, it, the, the depictions are much better. They are included into their schools and communities much more. There's much stronger at self-determination and um, having reciprocal relationships between peers and their family members. They're not killed off at the end of the story. (laughs) I'm serious. We've had lots of those early books where they didn't know what to do with the the individual with a disability. So they either institutionalize them to solve the problem or somehow there's some mysterious death. But we're not seeing our characters with disabilities die so much anymore. The authors are getting much better at resolving the conflict or letting the conflict still kind of resonate with today of, you know what, not everything is going to be solved. Like this book, Just Because. Beautiful book. I, I, love, I love the illustrations in the book. So gorgeous. I do too. This is by Jacqueline Wilson. And um, it's told from the point of view of the sibling with without a special need. And the sibling doesn't know why she can't do algebra, why she can't ever pilot a plane or walk or talk or move around because her sister Clemmie is just not like that. And it's just because there are not always easy answers. And this book shows it's okay to not have the answers. And that is one of the things I think particularly with kids in relating with these books is, you know, sometimes there really aren't answers or sometimes there's not really an appropriate way or sometimes particularly interacting with if they have a friend like this. Some friends may want to interact this way and some friends may not want to interact this way. And so it's just a matter of, okay, we've got to figure out this individual as a person and instead of instead of categorizing it as a disability. We want to, we want to make it more individualized. So do you see these children's books as helping st- 
children, particularly those that don't have disabilities, be more empathetic and accepting of those children around them that might be suffering with a disability? Absolutely. Here's one example, and this is an award winner from the Dolly Gray Award from 2016. This is the Picture Book Award. It's called My Friend Suhana. It's by Shaila Abdullah and her mother, Shaila's the mother, mother mother-daughter team, and Anya Abdullah. Um, The daughter had gone to a community recreation center and met a a girl there who had cerebral palsy. She was in a wheelchair. And this this gal thought, I want to be friends with her. And so for her class assignment, she wrote a little book about this friend at the community rec center. And it ended up she kind of fixed the book a little bit and got it published and it won an award. So that's just one example of – you know, this is just a kid in my class at the rec center, and we became friends, and I became accepting, and she accepted me, and we're different, and we're the same in some ways, and uh, beautiful friendship. So we do see that happening. And I really love that. So let's say I encounter a book that it has a depiction of a child with a disability. What would be like your top two or three tips for me as I was reading this book and preparing to either share it with my child at home or maybe in a library or some other context, what would be your, you know, kind of final tips to help us just be open and understanding the best quality of these books and and what should we be Mm -hmm. looking for? I think the dimensionality of the character, particularly in the novels, I mean, the the picture books, you really can't have a lot of dimension, but that in the novels, they they really are there and they're part of the storyline. And without them, the story wouldn't go the same, that they're not just there to promote someone else's growth. So that's part of it. And another part is, you know, are there exemplary practices going on? Are they stuck at home with, and that's not their choosing? Or do they get to go play on the baseball team? Um, do they always have to interact with kids like themselves? So if it's a kid a, a kid with Down syndrome, does he always have to be with the other kids with Down syndrome? Or can he integrate with any kid of his choosing? And one question I usually ask people is, would you want to be a friend with this child? And that's easy yeah. to do in with picture books. Would you want to be friends with them? And, and if they say no, then I think, okay, what is it about that particular book where they would not want to be friends? And there have been some books that I've loved, and the kids have said, no, they're too different, mm-hmm. which means, you know what, that author was and or illustrator, they were emphasizing the differences more so than the similarities. That is a really good question, and particularly as adults as we're looking at these books, we could ask those same questions, and I think that would be a really great way to show this balance and that depiction. So that's a fundamental question that I that I love. That's a yeah. great way to do it. Well, thank you so much, Tina, for giving us that wonderful piece of advice that we can look at these books, and maybe some of our listeners hopefully will go to their libraries and uh, look for some more books with children with disabilities in them and expose themselves to some of these great titles and, and learn more about the wide range of humans that, that are on the earth. <laughs> thank you yes, so much. Thank you. Dr. Tina Dykes talking about books that can help our children be more accepting of those with a disability. Next on Worlds Awaiting, Rachel visits with illustrator-author Leslie Helikoski about her process of creating children's books and where her ideas come from. Not everything you know comes out of thin air, and every author finds unique sources of inspiration. Helikoski is the author and sometimes illustrator of 10 picture books, including Wilbur, 
Big Chickens, and Big Pigs. Her books and illustrations have garnered a number of awards. Here's Leslie and Rachel. We're visiting with Leslie today. Welcome to the show, Leslie. Thank you, Rachel. We are so excited to visit with you today, and I think I'd like to start out by just asking you a little bit about your process. So how do you go about starting a book? Where, where does the idea come from? That's something actually children ask a lot, as well as adults. And, of course, ideas come from all kinds of different places. Some of my ideas have come from watching animals. Some have come from a phrase or a word that um, triggers something. And, and often it is something that gives me an image in my mind. Like um, I once was watching a documentary about cows and I was getting ready for the state fair and I just got this picture in my head of a cow sitting under a hairdryer and um, I just couldn't shake that image of the cow getting ready and getting beautiful that way. And so eventually I wrote a story about cows getting ready for the state fair. And I did paint a picture of a cow under a hairdryer. So often it starts with something visual in my mind, even though I may not illustrate the book. Well, I think that's interesting because you write and have others illustrate your books, and then you also write and illustrate your books. So let's talk a little bit about the differences between those two. So when you're writing and somebody else is going to illustrate, what is your process? I always work on a story first anyway. So the story, for me, the story comes first, and I have to get that down before I even really consider whether I'll be illustrating it or not. I often start out thinking, I don't want to, I don't think I'm the person to illustrate this. And then later on in the process, when the story's done, um, I will start seeing the images and I'll want to illustrate it. But also, it's often not my choice. And initially, when I first started out, it was pretty much, this is what we would like to do and we're not interested in another way. Um, but now, it, it's more of a discussion, although I've still had publishers recently say that this is not the right style that they see for the book, so they will want another another illustrator. That, that's an interesting approach. Why do you think picture books are a, a good format to, to communicate some of the stories that you have to tell? Well, they say that writers write for the mental age that they really are. <laughs> and I think I've just always loved that age, that early childhood um, age group. I love that when they can talk and think on their own, but they're still so uninhibited and playful and imaginative. And the picture book, of course, is, is a quick format. It's generally 32 pages. And part of that is based on the attention span of the children of, of that age group, you know, three to eight or three to seven, whatever age group you're targeting. And um, I, I don't know. I've, I've just always loved picture books. I loved it as a child when I was, even when I could read chapter books, I still was drawn to picture books. And part of it may have been the, the paintings, the drawings that intrigued me. But um, I just love a good story, and I, I, don't, I like that you don't have to get bogged down in the details and the description of things. You get right to the action. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the things I love about picture books is that the pictures and the text kind of equally tell the story. And there's this, this approach that the text has to interact with the pictures and the pictures have to interact with the text. I think a lot of times... Um, 
that it's particularly important for that age group that you're talking about to be able to read the pictures as well as the text. So when you talk with your when you talk with your readers, have you been surprised by anything maybe that they saw in the pictures that or in the text that you didn't entirely intend or something that you think, oh, I'm glad they noticed that? Um, they do sometimes notice things that I may have not thought thought too much about. So they will they will call you on things if they think something is is incorrect. Especially, you know, they love when they can spot something that maybe the adults made a mistake on. Um, so they will point things out like that. As for example, in Wilbur, they have pointed out. Well, the mom says this will never wash out of his wool, this coloring will never wash out of the wool, but then in the next image it is washed out. So they they will jump on things like that. Um, and it just opens up the door to have a conversation. That's one of the things I love about child readers is they tend to be much more aware of what's going on in the books. But yeah, yeah you know, as you as you do this process, um, is, there, is there sometimes that you start a project and it it doesn't come to where you need it to be, and then you either abandon it or or you revamp it totally? And then how do you deal with those kinds of roadblock kinds of options that come when you're, when you're writing and creating? Well, there definitely are times when the story just doesn't flow, stops going like an idea that I may have been tinkering with. I cannot find the right way to tell the story. Um, I may have an image in my head or an idea I want to explore, and I just can't find a, a compelling way to tell the story. And I'll either give up on it or give up on it temporarily. Put it away is, is a great tactic a lot of writers use, to put it away and rest. And then when I surprise myself with it later with fresh eyes, I sometimes can find a new way in um, that I hadn't thought of. Or I may even read something that triggers an idea. I'll see something another author has done, a different kind of format that I might want to play with. I may pick up a book that is using a um, parallel storyline where two things are going on at the same time, and I'll think, well, that's a creative way to tell this story, and then I'll think, maybe I could use something like that to tell this one that I'm stuck on. Maybe that will get me unstuck. So I'll, you know, sometimes a mentor text is good for that sort of thing. I think that's a really interesting point because it's amazing how much other artists or other writers influence what you do. So what are some of those artists or writers that that have had a really strong impact on your work? There are so many that influenced me. And there's a a well-known writer, children's writer, um, Richard Peck, and he says, we write by the light of every book we've ever read. And I think that's really true because we're influenced we're influenced by everything. I mean everything that I've read when I was young and everything I've read in the last 20 years they've all influenced my writing. So um to name just a few Roald Dahl I just love his his stories they're so wacky and creative and fun. Children have been loving them for decades that that is just so inspiring i i love beverly cleary i loved the um 
the Grimm's, the Grimm's brothers, the brothers Grimm. I I love fairy tales, and I love the illustrated fairy tales, the, those elaborate paintings and things. Those I would look at those pictures for hours as a child, and just the detail in them and the the beauty in them. Um, a lot of that has inspired my work. Leslie, thank you so much. It's been an honor visiting with you today. I have learned so much more about you and your process, and it's just been really wonderful to have this chance to to get to know you on a different level than reading your books. (laughs) Well, thank you, Rachel. This was fun. Author-illustrator Leslie Helikoski talking about her process of creating a book. We finish the show with a visit to a public library. Cole Wissinger, a member of our World's Awaiting team, talks to parents and grandparents about their favorite books from childhood and the kind of books they now share with their children. Here's Cole. Whenever you were growing up, what was your favorite book? You know, in my day, there weren't a lot of children's books. So Dr. Seuss was kind of new, and that was exciting because there were children's books with illustrations, and it was fun. I liked Dick and Jane, too, (laughs) in the early days. And then I like Laurel Ingalls Wilder later on. I loved when I was a baby. My dad would read me the monster at the end of the book with um, a Grover. Yeah, that's his name. And so I loved how just like my dad was so dramatic and did the voice and all the pages and no, you know. And when I got older, I loved all sorts of books. I would like come home with like piles. When I was older and I was in junior high, I know I did the Shannara series. I remember correctly, it's been a while. And I liked reading the classics, so I would challenge myself. I tried to read War and Peace, I don't think I made it through. It was in junior high, it was too hard. Okay, well, I really like fantasy novels, so I like anything by Sarah Moss or anything like the Graceling series is one of my favorites. Um, picture books, I mean, any Caldecott Honor winners, like my favorite. I just read The War That Saved My Life, which was a Newbery Honor last year, and I just loved it. I could go on. I love the Little House on the Prairie books, Andrew Green Gables, every, anything by E.B. White. I was a reader when I was a kid. My favorite book when I was a kid was from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Oh. Basil E. Frank Weiler. I think I liked it because I thought that I would probably run away and do what <laughs> the girl in the book did, that I would run away and live in a museum like she did, and I would have a really mysterious life, and nobody would ever find me. <laughs> And it would be just like it happened in the book. Another book I really liked was Harriet the Spy. And I thought that I would be a spy exactly like Harriet. So I kind of became the characters that I read about in my books that I read, that I read as a child. And I, it, it was kind of my life. Reading was my life. And it still is. What is the book character that you relate to the most? I don't know. Who's a tired mom? That's who I would relate to right now. I always liked, not a particular character, but I always liked um, just the more kind of serious books that talked about, you know, serious characters and how they grew up and how, like, either something happened to them and they had to grow up, not be a child anymore, or kind of like that. I could kind of relate, just like my, my life matched up with theirs. There was a girl in the Happy Hollisters that was a tomboy, and I felt sure that I was going to be a tomboy, that I was kind of a tomboy in training, and that I was going to be so good at softball, and I just, it was just my dream, like it was just my destiny to be like the girl in the Happy Hollisters, and she was one of, I think she was a twin, and I just read these books, and I just 
became the characters. Like I just thought these things are going to come true for me. And so that was one of my characters, even though it was really when I was very young. It was very impressionable. They, they also have a little place where you can buy some of the books from the authors. That's where I just snagged you coming out of. So what what'd you get today? What oh, book are you holding? Okay, I'm actually holding Wet Cement. It's a book of concrete poems. Get it, everybody. Um, and I, I bought it for one of the teachers at my school. I'm a school librarian. Bedtime at the Swamp and Zambalina. And I chose them for my children. So Zambalina for my daughter. Um, she's a dancer and she's just a crazy kid, kind of a tomboy, likes crazy stuff, monsters and dinosaurs, and I thought this was a perfect fit for her. And then the bedtime at the swamp is something fun that I could read like a bedtime story, you know, for both my kids, so. Um, well, I have 44 grandchildren, so I come here every year, and usually my daughter comes, she's not here this year, but then I buy um, books for Christmas for them. So um, I have a lot more in the car bags and bags. Parents and grandparents at a public library talking about their favorite books from childhood and the books they now share with their children. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.